Good evening and welcome to Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, your host this evening, and doing our audio engineering tonight is Sarit Lashinsky. Here on the show, I aim to bring you stories of groundbreaking innovation in the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines entirely from a teenage perspective. The program highlights local, regional, and national STEM stories with young people and respected experts in their fields. Tonight, we have two very special guests lined up for you guys, starting off with Kate Ayers to talk about St. Jude's STEM education program and ending with the CEO of St. Jude's, Dr. James Downing. Welcome, Kate. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining us on Teen Scientist and making the time for WDIY. Now, if you don't mind, could we start with having you share with our listeners about your education and background and how this path led to St. Jude's? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in the Memphis area. So I am a a native to Memphis, which is where St. Jude is located. And after graduating high school, I went to a small liberal arts college where I studied chemistry and theology. Then after college, I went to the UT Health Science Center, that's the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, where I earned a master's in biomedical research with an emphasis in structural biology. After that, I closed my, well, after I closed my master's, I went into teaching. I taught seventh grade life science at an all-girls school here in Memphis for about five years. And I'm currently working on a doctorate. Um, I'm in a doctoral program at the University of Memphis studying um, education, psychology, and research with a focus on STEM education. The UTL Science Center here in Memphis has a relationship with St. Jude's. So I actually did my graduate research here in a lab at St. Jude's studying structure-based drug design. And then after I left the lab and went into the classroom, I happened to meet the person who was launching the St. Jude Education and Outreach Program at a conference. And he encouraged me to apply for a position, which I did. And um, I think that because I had been in a lab at St. Jude and and was well-versed in St. Jude research, that that was a very attractive quality for this particular job. And so that was 10 years ago. And then I've been here ever since. And can you give a brief description of what exactly you do as the director of the STEM education and outreach program? Sure. Yeah, I think maybe um, to answer that, I first need to describe what exactly the STEM education and outreach program is. So the STEM education and outreach program focuses on career training and enhancement from kindergarten to 12th grade in areas related to science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine. So that's STEM with two M's to emphasize the integration of STEM with medicine and how it's used to propel the mission of St. Jude, right, to advance cures and means of prevention for pediatric catastrophic diseases. And so my role as the director of STEM education and outreach is to develop strategies for how best to address issues of equity in STEM education. Um, So issues of equity such as race and racism and classism that prevent or limit who can be a scientist and whose ideas matter in science. And then also to measure the outcomes and impacts of these programs. And you're also the leader of the hospital's research immersion program. What is the purpose of this program and who specifically is it targeted towards? That's right. So the purpose of the research immersion program is to provide high school students in the Memphis area an opportunity to immerse themselves in a research setting. So students in the program work with a mentor to develop their own research project that they present in the form of a scientific poster during a community exhibition at the end of the program. The hope is that these early experiences will inspire students to pursue a STEM-related degree and perhaps even enter the biomedical research workforce and, you know, who knows, maybe one day even join the scientific workforce at St. Jude. And how many years has this initiative been going on for? One year. 
So we hosted our first cohort of students last summer. Um, There were 16 students that were a mix of high school and college students. This year, we are focusing on rising seniors only, which was a decision made based on feedback from the students and their mentors. And we're also growing the program to 32 students with plans to continue to grow the number of participants over the next five years. So would you say these small numbers allow for a more intimate environment to, you know, like allow these participants to form connections with each other as well? Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, well, really, honestly, honestly, the small cohort size is more from a programmatic perspective, right? So when they come into the research immersion program, yes, they do spend time as a whole group, maybe during lunch. And we do have, we have a Friday workshop where we work with them on thinking about who they are as scientists and and who they want to become as scientists. But really, they're going into these research settings. And so, you know, that part becomes very intimate. It's them and a mentor along with um, a partner. So we partner our students as they go into the laboratories. And I think that that helps with that relationship building. But really, starting small is more about program building. So for me as the leader, I don't want to make mistakes with 100 students, right? I want to make mistakes with only 16 students, and I can learn from those 16. And then as we grow to 32 this next year, I can hopefully try to minimize those mistakes, probably make some new mistakes because now it's a larger number of students, and then continue to grow it and find, like, what is that sustainable balance that I need to in terms of number of students and how we um, structure the program. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And how exactly does the application process work? Would you say this is relatively selective? It is. Yeah, it is. It has to be. So we had over 350 students apply for the program. So for a program of only 16 students, that was a lot of students to have to whittle down. Um, As students apply through an online portal, the application consists of five short answer responses and a teacher recommendation letter. Um, We also gather demographic factors to help in the selection process. And then we take take what's called a diverse by design approach to the selection process. And, And what that means is we are intentional to create a cohort of students that is reflective of the Memphis area demographics. So selection goes through several processes to try to ensure that we meet that diverse by design goal. And so the first step is actually a blinded review. Again, we started with 350, so we have to whittle it down pretty significantly. And um, that blinded review is important because there's a lot of research that shows that when you blind a review process, you minimize personal bias in the application process. And so we want to make sure that we are minimizing as much bias as possible to ensure that each student is coming into the program based on their merit and not some bias based on on a demographic factor. And so we start with 350. Through the blinded review, we whittle that down to 100 applicants, and those move forward. The second phase of the application process is actually an equity scale that we developed in-house. And so we have a rubric based on several equity-related criteria, such as race, gender, household income, these kinds of factors that can play a role in who gets to become a scientist. And we use that equity scale and whittle it down to the top 32 students. And then we had a faculty review process who did a final review and helped us narrow it down to the final 16. So it was an incredibly competitive process. And it was, you know, rigorous in an intentional way to try to reduce bias as well as ensure equity of the program. And what kind of research are these students performing? Are they pretty diverse or are they all, you know, similar in the same field of research? 
Yeah, so they really are in a broad spectrum of research areas. So students were placed into areas such as basic science. Those are labs that are doing, you know, cancer cell biology and genetics research. Some were in data science groups, so projects like trying to optimize treatments for patients using large data sets. And then others were in psychology departments. So, for example, researching how best to support the social and emotional development of patients with sickle cell. So they really were in a, in a broad spectrum of different research areas. And what was the final product of their work? Did they write a paper or do a presentation at the end? Yeah, so they, they give what's called a scientific poster presentation. So they develop a scientific poster and then they present that to um, community members, a community exhibition. So we invite scientists from the institution, but also parents, teachers, civic leaders in the area to all come and participate in that community exhibition and see their work. And what would you say are the long-term impacts of this program? So hopefully, right, we're seeing that more and more students from the Memphis area are interested in careers in science and STEM and going on to pursue science and STEM-related degrees as they enter into college. And then, again, hopefully one day some of these students will return to St. Jude, maybe as faculty members, but as members of the scientific workforce in some way. You know, and I also think that, you know, this program will work to shape the culture of St. Jude in meaningful ways um, as more scientists take on the task of mentoring young scientists. And then I have a question for you as a STEM leader and former teacher. What are some of the largest challenges that you faced in the past and how were you able to overcome them? Me, you mean like me personally? Yes. You can take your time. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to be honest. So, again, I mentioned I, would, I did my graduate work. So I was on the path towards a Ph.D., a doctorate in biomedical research, studying structural biology. Uh, but I actually closed out of the program early. So I am what's called in the data failed to matriculate. I did not persist in the biomedical research pathways or career pipeline, however you want to talk about it. And that's when I shifted into science and STEM. And one of the main reasons that I did not persist is because of not so much, you know, gender issues within my lab setting or at St. Jude. I did my research at St. Jude or anything like that. But it was gender norms occurring in more of society, right? My mother became terminally ill and I am one of four children, but I'm the only daughter. And so I think that that sort of expectation to be there for her and take care of her really fell not solely on me. My brothers were also incredibly helpful through her diagnosis, treatment, and, and ultimately her death. But, but it did change how I was perceiving what I wanted in my future. And then I think there was also some mental health issues that, that I needed help coping with my mother's illness, my mother's um, death. And then, and then, yeah, so I think that that for me was a huge barrier in persisting in biomedical research. And so then I shifted to the classroom. And of course, at that time, I, I don't have any background in, in terms of being formally educated as an educator. Everything I learned sort of on the job. And I went into a private all-girls school. I did not grow up in private schools. I went to public schools. But I went to public schools in um, a very white, very affluent suburb of the Memphis community. And so I, I started to see the different spectrum of what schooling is and what schooling can be and who gets different types of schooling. And then when I started working at St. Jude in this current role, I stepped for the first time into an all-black school, an all 
an all under the poverty line school. And it really struck me like, oh, that the spectrum isn't at all what I thought it was from public to private school, that even within public schools, there's this large spectrum of who gets what resources and who has what kind of not even quality educator. There's a lot of quality educators everywhere, but but the quality of the building itself, like who gets to be in a building where where there are bright lights in the hallways versus dark dim lights and where the environment is warm and friendly versus dark and, and cold and sort of unfriendly. Um, and so I think that those are two different sort of pieces to what you asked, right? So one is my personal barrier to why I failed to persist, but the other is how I came to realize what inequity really looks like when we talk about STEM education. Definitely. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Lastly, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and to support St. Jude's or the Research Immersion Program? Yes, I think the best place to find information is through the stjude.org website. So on that website, there is a page that has all the information for not just the Research Immersion Program, but all of our STEM education and outreach programs. Thank you so much, Kate, for making the time for Teen Scientist. It has been great to hear about the impacts of St. Jude's outreach program. Thank you. Well, right now we are going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll speak with the CEO of St. Jude's Research Hospital, Dr. James Downing. This is Raina Malhotra, and you're listening to Teen Scientist on WDIY. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Galatia, and Brittany to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Bringing you music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar every Thursday from 7 to 9 on WDIY Allentown listener-supported community public radio. Welcome back to Teen Scientist on WDIY. I'm Raina Malhotra, your host. We just spoke with Kate Ayers about the STEM Immersion Program at the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, and now we'll be speaking to the CEO and president of St. Jude's himself, Dr. James Downing. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing good, and thanks for having us on the show. Thank you for joining us. Now, can you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Dr. James Downing, um, President and Chief Executive Officer of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and I have been at this great institution for uh, over 36 years now. And how did your career path lead to this position? What's kind of your background in this research? Yeah, so... um, I'll go back a ways to college, um, where I was an engineering student. Um, My father was an engineer, and my sister's an engineer, and my brother's an engineer, and so that was the family business. And, um, you know, as a freshman in college, um, enjoying the engineering classes, but I stumbled on a biology class, a subject that I really didn't like, but I had to take as a prerequisite to graduate from engineering. And um, reading my biology book that night, um, I sort of misread the assignment, ended up on a section on cell division, um, fell in love with with what I was reading, actually fell asleep on the book that night, and the next morning changed my uh, major and decided I was going to go into, you know, biochemistry and um, do research and was able to do that in college um, and then uh, went to medical school and uh, in medical school was able to continue to do laboratory research. Um, And then I, from there, became a pathologist and a hematopathologist specializing in the diagnosis of blood disorders and continued to do research my whole career. So I came to St. Jude really as a junior faculty um, 
member to pursue a career in research focused on leukemia and the um, pathology of leukemia, and wound my you know way through the organization from um, setting up the first molecular diagnostic lab to being the chair of the Department of Pathology to being scientific director of the institution to being CEO. Um, but throughout all of that, continued to run a research laboratory focused on leukemia and trying to understand the pathology of leukemia and better ways to diagnose and treat children with leukemia. And you mentioned that you have had your position for over 30 years, and I can imagine that's been quite a journey. So do you have any, you know, stories or challenges that you've faced over the years that have, you know, taught you a lesson and you've overcome in a special way? You know, I think, you know, probably the most important lesson was that I was always working on a problem, a problem of importance. You know, I wanted to understand how mutations drive the formation of leukemia and how we might use that information to better diagnose, risk, stratify, or treat leukemias. Um, and, you know, pursuing a problem like that, um, I was often challenged by what are the methodologies, the techniques that we could use to um, explore that problem and gain information that would help us answer that problem. And, you know, Technology has changed massively in those 30 years. Um, I started out really as a protein biochemist focused on the proteins and looking at the way they get altered in leukemia cells and then, um, you know, moved on towards mouse genetics to be able to manipulate mice to understand how particular mutations might affect normal blood-forming cells to then uh, moving into genomics and looking at what are the constellation of mutations that work together to generate leukemias and then on to human you know, genomic studies looking at uh, lesions that actually predispose children to leukemia and other types of cancer. So the, I think the lesson in there is to really be working on a very important problem that you are trying to pursue to gain answers on it uh, and don't ever shy away from learning new approaches to gain insights into how to answer that problem. And so from not knowing anything about genetics to becoming a geneticist, not knowing anything about sequencing to becoming an expert in genomic sequencing, um, it's this realization and perhaps challenge that you're going to be constantly learning your entire career and embrace that and, and become the best self-learner you possibly can be. And the other thing is enjoy the journey. Um, there's just nothing like making a scientific discovery. Um, and, and, you know, I often equate it to back when I was a kid and would hit a home run and that feeling, and it's the exact same feeling you get by um, making scientific discoveries. I definitely agree. And I want to transition a little bit because you already have mentioned part of your research in genomics. For the sake of our listeners, can you explain what exactly is a genome and how you've been able to use genome sequencing to make progress towards treatment options for pediatric cancers? Yeah, I mean, every, you know, we have we have DNA at the core of every cell that dictates the blueprint for the formation of all the proteins and for the entire orchestration of a cell into organs, into the entire body. And, um, you know, 3 billion base pairs organized into over 20,000 genes. Um, and many diseases are caused by alterations in those genes, mutations in those genes. Um, and cancer is primarily driven by uh, mutations in particular genes that lead to the formation of cancer and the constellation of mutations. And so, um, 
sequencing of the DNA to understand um, its code, you know, has been around for a long time. But it, back when I started here, we were doing sequencing by manually pouring, you know, big glass sheets of gels and, you know, uh, using radioactive uh, compounds and um, reading uh, x-ray films that were exposed to these sequencing gels. You know, and then over time, this became more automated, and then it became highly parallelized so that we end up with what's called next-generation sequencing. And almost 20 years ago, or over 20 years ago now, the first human genome was sequenced, the first sequence of the entire human genome. Um, you know, and now today, we can sequence a human genome, um, you know, in less than a day. And the cost has gone down from almost a billion dollars to, you know, less than a thousand dollars. And so um, that new technology has allowed us to sequence the genome of cancer cells and to sequence them, you know, at great resolution across many different kinds of cancers. But, um, you know, 13 years ago, we, we did the Pediatric Cancer Genome Project. And, you know, at that time, only one human cancer had been sequenced. And we decided we were going to sequence over 600 pediatric cancers um, and match normal tissue from those same 600 patients. And that endeavor just gave incredible insights into what are the mutations that drive pediatric cancer across brain tumors, solid tumors, and leukemias that occur in the pediatric population. Well, thank you for that. It was a very thorough explanation. Um, What was the timeline like for this research? Did you break it down into different phases? And like, how how did you kind of organize this research? It's interesting. You know, probably, you know, so we initiated this in 2010. Um, Probably five years earlier to that, we sat around and said, is it time to do this kind of project, to do a pediatric cancer genome sequencing project? And we came to the conclusion that the technology really wasn't ready, the informatics wasn't ready, and it was not time to do that. Too much developmental work needed to be done by in the technology and the informatics of the technology. So then, you know, comes around 2009, we get back together um, and we decide, well, it is time to do it. And so how are we going to do it? Um, and, you know, we decided, well, we're going to go all in. We're going to um, do 600 tumors, 600 normal cells. We're going to do it um, whole genome at a very high level of resolution. And we were going to do it in three years, you know, very aggressive timeline. And, you know, our feeling was we we're going to build that infrastructure as we go. We're going to develop the um computational tools needed to analyze that data as we went. And so we started out with only 50 cases the first year. And then um, I think it was 250 the second year and then 300 the third year. So really accelerate the rate at which we did it. We ended up doing 700 cases and we finished before three years. Um, So it, it was massive sequencing efforts. The amount of data is unbelievable how much was acquired. And so um, all kinds of new computational tools had to be developed to um, analyze the sequence, to visualize the data, to help interpret it. And so it was a project that involved probably 250 individuals. And we, you know, coordinated it with two meetings every single week across operations or across data interpretation, um, multiple retreats and interactions that we had. So, um, very large-scale collaborative science that brought people together that I'd never seen work together before, from uh, chemists 
developmental biologists, computational biologists, to pathologists, leukemia docs, um, you know, just a broad swath of different people. And how is the use of genome sequencing unique from other treatment options in the medical world right now? Yeah, uh, genome sequencing is um, sort of part of the diagnostic repertoire. And so uh, when somebody has cancer, you know, first um, we'll focus on children. You know, if they're presenting with leukemia, they have certain sets of symptoms and signs and fever and, and paleness. And so then we end up looking at their peripheral blood and we'll see leukemic cells. We'll then do a bone marrow aspirate and be able to make the diagnosis. But then the real issue becomes what kind of leukemia is this? Um, what lesions does it have? Because that becomes essential for deciding how best to treat the patient. It's really that next level of now let's do the genomic sequencing of their tumor to see what lesions and what kind of leukemia do they have so we can decide the best way to treat them. And so in our pediatric cancer patients, every patient is getting sequencing of their tumor sample and their normal tissue so that we can make the best diagnosis, we can make the most accurate, and then really develop the therapy so it's precise for that patient, giving them the best possible chance for a cure. And where do you see the future of this research going? What are your long-term goals? Yeah, our long-term goals are really um, beyond the genetic sequencing or the genomic sequencing of the tumor samples. So we've, we've sequenced, you know, a large number of tumor samples now and are sequencing every day the patients that come into the institution. So we continue to gain new insights and develop new tools to analyze that data. There are new ways to sequence that give us longer reads, that give us uh, even more information. Um, you know, so now we know a large range of the mutations that are driving pediatric cancer. The issue then becomes how do we actually use that for diagnosis and risk stratification? So we are doing that, um, but now how do we use it to better treat those patients? And so that takes fundamental research, right? It takes, um, you know, well, how does that mutation affect that molecule that the mutation is occurring in? How does that effect on that molecule affect the biology of the cell? Is there anything in that cascade of events that we might be able to develop a drug against that would interrupt that cascade and prevent the cancer cell from growing or perhaps surviving, um, you know, so that we could kill the cancer cell with great precision. And so we're doing lots of work along those lines of, um, you know, fundamental research, looking at the consequences of that mutation at a molecular scale, at a cellular scale, um, and trying to see can we develop new insights and are any of these um, mutant proteins, good targets for potential cancer therapy development, and if they are, how to develop that new therapy. Well, that is really amazing work. Now, before we end, I want to ask, what last piece of advice would you give to our young listeners who might be interested in this field of research? Science is an incredibly exciting field. Um, it is a field where you, know, you can pursue the generation of new information. Um, you can learn new technologies, um, work with people of massively different kinds of backgrounds that are maybe mathematicians, computer scientists, um, physical chemists, organic chemists, uh, biologists. Um, it is a great team sport, and it is a sport that is, or, or career, that is filled with excitement. 
you know, it's not easy. Um, most things fail. Discoveries are hard to come by. Uh, but when you have one, it is incredibly exciting. So it's a career that um, I was lucky to find as a young man and, and uh, you know, have thoroughly enjoyed. And, and you know, um, I think as a, a young person thinking about a career, you know, science is one you should definitely explore and see if it's the kind of learning that excites you and um, one that you could pursue as a career to essentially discover new knowledge. Well, thank you, Dr. Downing, for making the time for Teen Scientist. It was great to hear about the progress that St. Jude's is making to the world of research and medicine. Well, thanks, and, and enjoyed talking to you. Me too. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today for WDIY's Teen Scientist. Check out WDIY.org to listen to this show and other great radio segments in podcast form. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time on Teen Scientist. <laughs>